This is Hal Hester, lead pastor of Vine Life, and this is our podcast, The Empowered Word. I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope this message inspires you, builds your faith, and gives you perspective on what God is doing in your life. Please enjoy the message. Well, good morning. Good to see you this morning. Hope all is well with you. Excited to be with you this morning. Looking forward to getting into Mark chapter 4 this morning. So let me invite you to go ahead and just be turning, if you would, uh, if you're using a, a, you know, a paper Bible, turning over there or opening your app, whichever is uh, better for you. But, um, you know, as we're getting into Mark chapter 4, I uh, want to uh, remind you of a couple of things. Each week as we've started, you know, I, I'm trying to help us hold together some pieces so that, you know, from the very onset of this series that we would, you know, keep in mind the, some, the big picture. Because usually whenever we talk about uh, things from the Gospels, there is a tendency to kind of treat it a little bit like a string of pearls. What I mean by that is simply this, that when you look at a string of pearls, like every pearl is individually, you know, uh, on the string, right? And, and that there's this uh, sense in which it's a whole string of pearls, but if you take a moment and you look, we tend to kind of focus on each little pearl and its you know, uh, place. It's, it's very, it tends to be treated very individually uh, instead of treating it like a whole. We, and, and so I think it's really important when we look at the Gospels uh, that we step back enough to get that big picture uh, and that we don't get lost in each of the individual stories, as good as they are. Uh, and one of the reasons that is, is simply, as I've mentioned uh, over the last several weeks, is that the, each gospel is written and put in, in a particular order. It's not chronological. It's put in that particular order uh, to set those stories of what Jesus said and did in a particular way uh, to drive us toward a particular point. They're, they're making a point. And so in the case of Matthew, Matthew gets a lot into the genealogies, the details. It's a very, very Jewish gospel. Uh, Luke uh, gets into a lot of the historical details uh, that are not contained in the others. Uh, John deals with a lot of uh, personal conversations. It has a very personal tone to it. Uh, introduces us more to the personhood of Jesus as a man. Uh, there's a, a lot of depth and richness in those uh, exchanges of vocabulary between people. Um, but Mark uh, it gets is very abrupt. It starts with G, you know, with the proclamation of Jesus coming through John the Baptist. It doesn't get into all the details of genealogy and things like that. Uh, because of the way that it is written, uh, it is driving home some particular points. Among those being that uh, from the very opening chapter of it, it begins with the plot, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ according to the prophet Isaiah. And it is using a particular text about God coming to rescue His people. Now, typically when we hear that text, the first thing we think is about the Messiah because we've been kind of conditioned, having grown up in the church or only having heard it through the New Testament, we think immediately Messiah. But if you go back to the text there in Isaiah 40 and we take it apart and look at it, it's making a declaration that Yahweh Himself is the one who is coming uh, it is actually one of your best responses to somebody like a Jehovah Witness or something like that when they say, you know, that uh, this, this is another God. No, 
No, in fact, Mark is making it very clear that the one who is arriving, the one whom John the Baptist is making the places level uh, uh, for the coming of the way, to, to prepare the way of the coming king, is for the coming of Yahweh himself. And so it very centers us on this idea of who he is. And yet, here's the thing, because it doesn't say very much about it, we open the chapter with that hint and unless you're really familiar with Isaiah chapter 40, uh, you won't realize it. Uh, and so for most part, most of us have read it all of our lives just simply thinking of it as a messianic text and not having looked at it in its full context. And there begins kind of this sense of the secret of Mark, the secret of the mystery of the gospel is who is this that has come to us? Uh, something we're going to talk about significantly today is that question gets asked actually in Mark chapter 4, but there's the from the very beginning there's this hint this unveiling, but just a little peek. You know, you just kind of take a, a little bitty peek in and you go, hmm, what's that about? And it's meant to be that way on purpose so that you will continue your journey through the Gospel of Mark and learn what Mark has to tell you. It's amazing. It's like he's a, you know, knows what he's doing when he's writing and stuff. So anyhow, uh, also critical to the understanding of Mark is the focus on the kingdom of God, that it is both present and still yet to come in its fullest revelation. This means that for now, the secret kingdom is present. It's already there in the life and the ministry of Jesus. It's being passed on to the disciples. Uh, but yet there is still a sense in which a fuller expression of the kingdom would overtake the world and ultimately fill the earth in His final coming. And so there's a sense of expectation that is created from the very opening chapters that something is afoot, something's happening, something's being revealed. Again, the secret of Mark. Today, as we look at chapter 4, I want to remind you that chapter 3 ended with the idea that either you are with Jesus and therefore obedient, or we're on the outside. It very much sets, the standard is you're in or you're out, but there is no middle ground with Jesus. There is a driving point to that that is going to continue all the way through the next seven chapters, uh, making it really specific for or against, with or not with. Even if your family, even if you are, what, you know, regardless of your status, the, the measure the ultimate measure that it's given there is either that you are obedient and the ongoing fruit of being in Messiah is resulting in continued obedience or you're not with Him. There is no other ground. Let's take a look. Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. Please follow along whatever translation you have in your lap. That's my favorite. Let's take a look. Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, and we read these words. And again he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and his, teacher, in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it scorched it, and since it had no root, it withered away. 
Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, to those around him with the twelve, asked him about the parable and said to him, To you has been given the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand the parables? The uh, uh, The sower sows the word, And these are the ones along the path where the seed is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a little while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Others are the ones sown among the thorns, They are those who hear the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires of things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use it, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself the first, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, as he puts it, as at once he puts it, he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. And yet, when it's sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. And with many such parables, he spoke to them the word as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples he explained everything. And on that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And the other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking onto the boat, so that the boat was already filling But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? 
Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Blessed be the reading of God's holy word. If in your Christian experience has been anything like mine has been, I was first taught to read this parable of the soils in a very self-focused way. You know, the asking of the question of myself, what sort of soil is my heart? It's a good question. I don't want to discourage you as I say that. I, I'm just, but that's the primary way I was taught to read the text was that am I one who receives the message of the kingdom or one who rejects it? It's an important question. If I'm receptive, then the next question is, is, will I be fruitful? Will I be the kind that bears fruit or will I wither away? Will I fail in times of trial and temptation? Uh, will things choke out my concern for the word, uh, for other concerns? Or what, what will happen of me? Why, how's it going, is it going to bear fruit in my life? It's not a faulty perception by any means, but it is incomplete. As I've said before, and I say over and over again as we're looking at every text, remember that before we apply a text to ourselves, one of the things we have to ask the question, if we're going to keep it in its context, is we must first apply it to its original hearers, to the people that Jesus was specifically addressing or to which the apostle was writing to or whomever. Uh, we want to consider that first audience before we start with ourselves. Otherwise, we might make a 21st century application that really has nothing to do with what Jesus is saying. In this case, Jesus was speaking to his Jewish followers who are awaiting the news of Messiah's coming. They are hungry for the coming of Messiah. And with that, they had great expectations. Earlier, Joe mentioned the chosen, and a number of people in our fellowship are watching the chosen. And, and uh, you know, some of the things in there, I think, are, are really good at kind of flavoring, of coloring the page, if you will, uh, to give us some of ideas of background and, and, and a, a larger picture so that we don't treat the text very woodenly like we normally do. And in it, one of the things that I love is in the background, they've always got things where somebody has written something about the Messiah coming and, you know, that how he's going to overthrow Rome and, and the conversations that are happening between the disciples, uh, their concern about uh, military prowess and who has it and who doesn't and why would he call Matthew, and why would he call you know, James, he didn't seem military enough, and, and then why not the zealot, right, you know, and why aren't there more zealots, and, and there's this, this kind of stirring all around militaristic ideology and, and expectations, and the desire to overthrow Rome, and, and so there is a, 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 this angst that is in the air that is very accurate to the times. Jesus speaking to them about, the, about this and everyone wondering, is he the Messiah? But what they mean is, will he be the one who fulfills our greatest expectations about the kingdom of Israel? Not really the kingdom of God. I know that they say the kingdom of God, but they're 
there is a merger in their minds absolutely of the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of God as being one in the same thing. And what we are finding through Jesus' teaching and conversation is that they are not one in the same any more than the kingdom of God and the church are one in the same. There's overlap. There's definitely overlap. But the reality is, is that uh, the church is not the sum total of the kingdom of God any more than Israel is the sum total of the kingdom of God. Instead, there, is, there are people participating and oftentimes the kingdom of God is not actually a concern of theirs at all. Whether we're talking about Israel or whether we're talking about the church. There's oftentimes people that, you know, are just simply uh, in it for whatever it brings to them, or maybe they were born into it, or whatever else. There's all kinds of reasons. Sometimes they're social reasons, sometimes they're political reasons, sometimes they are, uh, uh, you know, economic reasons, or whatever else. Sometimes they're familial reasons. Whatever our different reasons are, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that everyone is for the kingdom, or even for the right understanding of the kingdom. In this case, the expectation of the day and the time is that when the kingdom would come, they were confident that Rome, along with the Herodians, with King Herod and his, and his sect, his family, his political intrigue and all that went with it, that the Hasmodean dynasty and all that goes with it, that all of these things would just collapse, that it would be overthrown, and that Israel would rise from the war to dominate the world. In other words, their vision of the kingdom was not any different than the vision of every other kingdom, that, a pagan kingdom, that wanted to dominate the world. Not really. Their vision of the Messianic kingdom was not necessarily a kinder, better vision of life. I mean, for them, but not for those who were outside of their circle. It was not one that was worried about justice in the world except to get back at those who had been unjust to them. Has that ever affected your vision of the kingdom at any point in time? I'm, I'm not accusing or anything like that. I'm just simply asking the question. I think it's one of the important questions that we ask sometimes. Is, is my vision of the kingdom one in which is in agreement with Jesus or with an expectation like Jesus where I want to see His kingdom come and bring hope and healing to the whole world? Or is my kingdom vision much more like I get rid of the people I don't like. I overcome the things. He crushes my enemies. I mean, sometimes, if we're really honest with ourselves, there's days when it's more like, he crushes my enemies than it is like for hope and healing of your next-door neighbor. I, you know, just, just a thought. Nobody else, probably just me, feels like that at times. But in truth, their vision was one, just a, one of replacing kingdoms of this world. Israel for Rome. But not any significantly different behavior, except it just meant that Israel wouldn't be oppressed, Rome would be. It's, it's that the believers that call themselves believers, 
that they wouldn't be oppressed. But everyone who doesn't think like us, they would be oppressed by us, no less. The oppressor becomes... The oppressed becomes the oppressor. It's not really much of a kingdom vision at all when you think about it like that. And yet sometimes we recognize that it, those same values settle in our hearts at times. Especially when we're not happy with the way things are going or political situations or social situations or, or whatever it else it is. All of us find ourselves in this place sometimes. Since it was an expectation of a kingdom that was basically the same as all the others, it was an ideology, ideology that was full of sin and death, not full of life and light and justice for all. That meant that the actual message of Jesus and his kingdom was not being well received. I know it seems it at times, but if, if you'll recall that as we go through the Gospels, that there's big crowds at first. There's big crowds when he's healing people. There's big crowds when he's feeding people. When, when some of these very carnal things are being touched on and everything, but as they begin to listen and the, and the message is being continually unveiled, as, as more is coming out of what this kingdom vision is really like, we find the disciples asking the question, what are you, what are you talking about, right? I, they, they start to ask, how can this be? And, and even at one point, Jesus says to the handful of disciples left, shall you leave me also? Because... They did begin to leave him. And their response is so powerful because you, un, you realize that they have been growing. They've been growing in their understanding. They've been growing in the realization of what the kingdom of God is really like. And they say, but where else would we go? For you have the words of life. But there's a definite shift that takes place through the course of the gospel where everything starts out really big and then starts to go seemingly downhill as we're headed to the cross. Not exactly the way we usually talk about it in church history. We just keep, you know, like the American dream, it's always got to go up and to the right, right? You know, and, and here's the reality. Life does not always go up and to the right, you know? <laughs> it, just, it just isn't really like that. That's an important Peace for us not to miss. If you're looking for a military or a political Messiah who will overwhelm the powers of this world with great might, with greater oppression, with dominance, you're not going to be interested in what Jesus is actually preaching. <laughs> Jesus was telling them the parable of the soils, and in it he was not simply just talking about what we might hear and receive when it comes to the message of the kingdom but specifically how it was being received in the day and the times that Jesus was in. See, some were excited about the proclamation of the kingdom, one where the people of God are being transformed and bringing hope to the nations, not just Israel. But many, many were responding differently. Some like, well, for instance, Judas, right? Remember, Judas is one of the, those sent out in twos that gets to heal the lame and the blind? Did, did you forget that about Judas? Judas did signs and wonders. Let that sink in for just a moment. 
Judas was one of those that participated in handing out the food as it multiplied. Some like Judas were excited, but by the end of Jesus' earthly ministry are not willing to allow the kingdom of God to include the nations. The Gentiles? People who don't agree with us? People who don't do like us? People, it's, you're not overthrowing Rome? You're not overthrowing the systems of the world by a massive, like, waging war against them? Some are excited about healing and the casting out of demons, the multiplication of food. and these they see a powerful military weapon, not hope and salvation for all. As we look at the soils of the heart, it's not merely about the level of receptivity or our stumbling over the message of the cross, but it is very much in part where we might stumble over Jesus even now, the inclusion of our enemies, the inclusion of the nations, of people we find undesirable. Those are real challenges, aren't they? I mean, especially depending on our mood or particular situation. And yet, we can't say yes to the salvation part of the message and not also receive the very people that Jesus gave His life for. Understand that every one of the religious leaders and Judas believed that they were pro-Messiah when they killed Jesus. They thought that they were doing the right thing when they handed Jesus over to the Romans. They believed themselves to be pro-Messiah at that point. They were defending truth. They were defending orthodoxy. They were defending their nation, their politics, while they betrayed it. Still true today. Some consider themselves Christians even in the midst of being anti-Semitic, dismissive of certain people, being harsh and judgmental, thinking that God only loves us or Americans or, you know, you name the, the, the caveats. All while being certain that they are pro-Messiah, even as they show contempt for those that Messiah died for. I mean, can anyone actually claim to be messianic? And not hear the words of Jesus that repeatedly warn us to measure the fruit of our lives. The point that he's making that you are either with me or you are against me. And the measure of that being obedience. See, you and I can't really love Jesus authentically and hate those he gave his life for. And, and as you can imagine, that kind of kingdom message, one that included their enemies, was not particularly popular with Pharisees. <laughs> and the talk of another kingdom? Remember the conversation with Pilate. I mean, it's, it's clear this is a dangerous conversation politically, socially, it's a dangerous conversation in every aspect of the world. It is, it is seditious in the minds of those who aren't on board. Were you the Hasmonians or the Herodians, the Pharisees, Rome? 
And so instead what we find is these people who all hate one another, right? Pharisees hate Hasmoneans. Hasmoneans hate Herodians. They all hate one another, right? I mean, but it's like he says, the kingdom of Satan is not divided. They all like join forces in that moment to try to do everything possible to undo him. Because nobody likes the talk of another kingdom. Our power, our authority, our place, our station might be taken from us if this message of the kingdom were to succeed. There would be no need for anyone in that position. See, this is one of the reasons why Jesus' message was being proclaimed slowly and being revealed because it's a dangerous message. There's a multitude of other reasons, but chief among them is that the message of the kingdom is, is so dangerous in the minds of men, even among his early disciples, you know, like we talked about, as, as they began to understand it, more and more of them fell away. But Jesus spoke in parables so as not to give his detractors enough rope to hang him before it was time. You see, a message like this needs time to cultivate. A message like this needs time to ferment. It needs time to bubble up within. Because here, have you, have you seen it in your own life? That like, what I first thought the message of the kingdom was all about, me and my hope of salvation, not so I didn't go to hell, and the way that it has fermented up in my life now so that I see the kingdom much more being about his ways in the world and his transformation of people and not just that I don't go to hell but that like I start becoming like him. I, I really am being transformed. I'm really becoming more Christ-like over time. It takes time for those kinds of things to, to ferment, if you will. It takes time. Time what was, is what was needed to get the word out in his day. I mean, just... Think of it this way, we have a hard time getting the word out with like social media and email and everything because nobody checks it anyhow. But, um, and, uh, you know, and in his day, like I want you to think about this, no printing press, no radio, no TV, no internet, just word of mouth. This is a slow process. Because it's not just about it getting from one ear to another. Anybody who's ever played telephone one time where you just whisper in somebody's ear something and they pass it along and by the time it gets back around and you go, wow, that is not what I said at all. It takes time for that message not just to be communicated but to take root, to find its place in people's hearts, to begin the transformative process. And the window was short, three years. What if it had gotten cut even shorter? Hmm. It took three years for the disciples, for the apostles to be ready, right? And even still, like in, the, in those last chapters, right, we, as we're looking at those closing moments, we're really asking ourselves, are these guys ready? Like, I mean, on the night Jesus was crucified, did Peter look ready? Nah. No, he didn't look ready, did he? I mean, he was. He was ready in a way that he couldn't begin to understand. Actually, it was in that moment where he, he was probably most prepared. 
the moments after his denial. Mark's gospel builds on this idea of the secret message, one that's come out, one that is not too much at one time, not by just any means. And so Jesus teaches in parables, which is veiled to the degree that he who has ears to hear can hear. And still, people like Jesus' disciples, the apostles, were told still needed clarification after every parable. Okay, I think you mean this, but is that what you were saying, right? I mean, they're, they're like trying to understand and they're still trying to unravel themselves from what they've been raised with, that messianic expectation that they've been raised with. On one hand, Jesus tells his disciples in verses 21 to 25 that this message is not meant to stay hidden. If you light a candle in the darkness, you do not put it under a bushel or a bed, or, but you put it on a stand for all to see. And that's why the gospel must proceed. It must go forward. It must get a full hearing so that everyone who can respond will respond. But there's caution to for those who are frustrated by this approach, verse 26 tells us the parable of the mustard seed in which he tells them, do not despise the day of small beginnings. Keep in mind that Israel thought the kingdom of Messiah would come like a whirlwind and blow the Romans out, swiftly defeating the whole world. Instead, Jesus says, it begins small, it comes slowly, it's first in secret, but one day the message of the kingdom will fill the whole earth so that the nations can find rest. That the birds of every kind, uh, that the kingdom of God extends itself to people who are afar off, to all the people of the world, to all the birds of the world. Church, take heart. The kingdom of God in our day is filling the whole earth. You know, often in the modern American church, we like to console ourselves by talking about how bad things are, right? I mean, you know, we make ourselves feel better about the sorry state of evangelism, the shrinking of the church in the United States and things like that, uh, you know, by telling ourselves it's, just so, it's so, just so bad. But globally, I say this to us all the time because, you know, like it's hard to let it sink in, Right? I tell you this not just for your sake, I tell you for my sake. Like when I read missions stuff out there and find out what's happening in the church, in the world, like, can I just tell you it's the biggest shot in the arm. It lasts right up until the next conversation when somebody tells me something that is just crushing. Anybody else? Anybody? Anybody? Bueller? No, <laughs> Listen, there are more Christians alive right now than ever before. We are now some 2.2 billion strong by those claiming to be Christians, and I'm reminded of the words of Jesus that if someone claims to be with us, they cannot turn around and be against us. Over half of all Christians that have ever lived, ever, 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 over half of all Christians that have ever lived are currently alive at this very moment. Let that sink in. If you think things are difficult now, let me tell you how much more difficult they were in the early days when Jesus' followers numbered hundreds, not billions. There is more light in the world now. So next time you think that like the 21st century is the most awful place ever, no, we're just good at doing it faster, but we haven't invented any new sin. 
Hello? You know, like, can I just remind you, birth control did not make people start having sex. Hello? Can I tell you that as awful as wars with bombs are, that wars with swords and stones were really brutal too? Can I tell you that depravity is not limited to the internet? Around the globe, the church of Jesus Christ is rapidly expanding even while it's losing ground in the West. The fastest expansion ever in history is happening right now. Surprise, surprise, some nations are hiding it from us. Surprise, surprise, the news media doesn't want you to know the church is growing. So the church is gaining gaining ground globally, especially in lands where it's outlawed. Little surprise that those same lands won't report actual statistics to us. I've used this stat before, but like it's one of the ones that like grabs my attention. In Egypt, the numbers that the government publishes for the number of Christians in the country of Egypt is smaller than the attendance rolls of just the Coptic church alone. I'm not talking about their membership roles that are often inflated. I'm talking about the actual attendance on a Sunday morning in Egypt. There are more people attending Coptic churches in Egypt on a Sunday morning than there are that the the Egyptian government will admit even exist in the entire country. They're lying. The Egyptian government lies. Are you surprised by that? I heard a comedian say the other day, he says, I'm only responsible for one person, and I lie to that kid all the time. And see, there's more than the Coptic church. The Anglican church is very strong in Egypt. The Presbyterian church is really strong in Egypt. Did you know that? Did you know that there are lots more Christians there? But sadly, what often we do is we, instead of finding hope in Jesus the Messiah as the church you know, is struggling in the West, sadly, what we do is we kind of we capitulate to this defeatist attitude, accelerating the collapse in our own world, actually, because we've decided that, well, it's all going to hell anyhow. I'll just give up. We grow silent, we grow defeated, and that's exactly what the enemy wants us to do. How tragic that we've surrendered when we're actually so close to triumph. Meanwhile, the parable of the mustard seed in this context, here as it sits in in Mark chapter 4, Mark is is put it in this place in the storyline precisely to remind us not to despise the small beginnings or even the slow growth, but to hang on to the very end because our deliverance is closer than it was. It's this sense of expectation that the gospel is continuing to go out. It goes to the ends of the earth, and we have this sense of waiting. And and listen, if it was true 
2,000 years ago, it's more true today that our deliverance is near to us. Our time of expectation should be growing, not, not collapsing. And so the chapter closes out with Jesus calming the storm. What a strange place to put it. Verses 35 to 41. Again, please remember, this is not chronological. Why did Mark put it there? Because it is purposely positioned that after the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the soils to tell us that Jesus is not worried. Jesus is not fearful of the storms. Jesus is not worried about the threats against life. Jesus is not worried. He said, we're going to the other side. He's casting a vision and he's saying, we are going to this place. And if the church has ears to hear, it will hear that we're going to this place. We're not going to be defeated. The gates of hell are not going to triumph against us. Wake up! Wake up, church! Our expectation is either one of fear or one of faith. He could sleep when the storm was raging because he knew who was in charge of the storm. He was not afraid. The disciples, though, they're in panic. They're in a frenzy. And they ask. It's an important question. I'm sure you've asked it. Don't you even care? Isn't that what we ask when, when the storm rages and it, things are not going our way or the things the way we thought they should have unfolded and we're like informing God of how he should have done it? I mean, not you. People at other churches down the street. No. I, you know, like, isn't it true? Where you're like, don't you even care? Have you ever asked that of God when you're in a frenzy, wrapped around the axle? Jesus turns it back around and, and you, it depends how you hear it. it tells you a lot about how you see God in that moment the rebuke how do you receive it do you receive it as why are you so afraid where's your faith or do you hear it as a condemnation why are you so afraid where's your faith you and I don't know right it's We don't have the audio recordings. Don't you wish sometimes we had the audio recordings? It's also sometimes why I don't like like, dramatic Bibles sometimes because I'm like listening, I'm going, "Uh uh-uh, I don't agree with you. That's interpretive. I don't know which. I know what I think it is because of what I believe about Jesus. What you think about who God is, who Jesus is, will determine on how you read it too. The question of verse 41 then is written for us in response. Who is this? The answer goes back to the very first chapter when he's quoting Isaiah. Prepare The way for Yahweh. We don't know that yet. Because we didn't read Hebrew and it's in Greek and you don't read Hebrew or Greek either probably. So, you know, you're reading in English and you don't know. You're just hearing 
these things. You're getting clues. You're picking up. You see, if you and I really want to get our heads and our hearts around who Jesus is, if we want to walk like David did through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, then we have to put our faith in this God, this God who is not afraid of the circumstances, who is not afraid when life and death presents itself, who tells us not to give in to the circumstances, to not be overwhelmed, to not believe those over and against who He is and who He's revealed to be, what He's doing in us or His great plans overall. And so we have this moment where we're in the midst of the stuff happening and we have to ask ourselves like and what have i believed and who do i put my hope do i trust god when i don't like the circumstances when the wind and the waves are battering me and does it have to be my way for me to trust him. It takes us really back to the beginning of the chapter, the four soils. When it isn't going the way I want. What is actually being revealed to me is the condition of my heart. Will I trust him when I don't like what I see? when I don't like who is included or how things are going? Am I ready to jump ship every time I hit wind and waves? Is my soil shallow? Is my soil full of other concerns instead of being first and foremost focused on the kingdom of God? Does everything else steal my priorities, my room for the kingdom, my center on Jesus, the advancing of his kingdom? Is my soul full of weeds that choke the gospel instead of give room to grow? See, it's, it's not a string of pearls. Each one of those stories is put there very purposely in that order to draw you to some conclusions. He's wanting you to think, not just in terms of that nugget of truth that's really powerful that you and I could just lift out of context and kind of do whatever. I can do all things through the verse taken out of context. But instead, I can do all things through the Christ who is with me in the midst. Literally there in Philippians when it says that, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, is on the context of having plenty and, having, and being in want. That's the actual context. And he's saying, doesn't matter whether I have a lot or I don't have anything. I can, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The, the, the point right here in the midst of the soils is, is really less about, like, you know, am I... Am I where, where's, what's the soil of my heart? And a whole lot more about like how do I react against the things and the turmoils of the world and everything else? And, and where is it that, that Christ, does Christ, is he the center? Is, am I finding myself in that place where I'm willing to be obedient to him, that I'm willing to pursue him no matter what, that the fruit 
of that then overflows in my life. Yes, even in the difficult circumstances, even in the hardships, even in the trials, even in the political turmoil, even in financial turmoil, whatever it is, like whatever the sea that whatever storm that's battering me in the midst of all of life, like who do I put my trust in? Is it in my ability to do a better job? Is it in my ability to attract more people? Is it in my ability to sell things, to advertise things, to work harder, to work smarter, to work faster, to... Are you exhausted yet? Listen, that, that's the kingdom of the world. That's the kingdom that forcefully advances and the forceful try to lay hold of it. But the kingdom of God is advancing in spite of the men who try to lay hold of it. Instead of the men of ambition grabbing hold of the kingdom, listen, you and I lay hold of the kingdom by trusting Him in the sea of circumstances that batter us around and we say, we're going to the other side. I will go with you. I will trust you regardless of my circumstances. I hope you do. Let's stand together. So, you know, while I'm trying to challenge us all to live in step with the high calling of the kingdom, let me assure you of a couple of things. Number one, I do not presume to know the soil of your heart. I, I really don't. I'm not sure I always know the soil of my heart on certain, some given days. Hello? I'm by no means questioning your faith. I believe every time Jesus asks that question, where is your faith, or he comments on somebody's faith, is he's trying to encourage them to push them in a direction. He's, he's not rebuking in the sense of, of a, a punishing or a negative. He's, he's asking the question because it's the question I need to ask of myself. Where's, where's my faith in the, mo in the midst of this? Here's what I do know about my own heart. I am confident of what I believe. I know that at times I am a man of great faith, and I know that other times I feel weak. I know that at times I am patient, and I know that at other times I am easily disturbed by wind and waves, that I become anxious. I know that at times I am turbulent, afraid. I'm run by my own agendas, and in those moments I need the Lord more than ever to shore me up to fill me up, and to recommission me. So if you're here this morning and, and, listen, you just need the Lord to shore you up, to fill you up, to recommission you, I want to invite you to do something this morning. I want to invite you, just would you come and stand right here in front of the stage? That's you this morning. You just like, God, I... I, I don't want to be battered by wind and waves. I, I need some strengthening this morning. Let me invite you to just kind of come up here and stand.
God bless you. Can I tell you, like one of the things that sometimes we miscommunicate about grace is that we make grace all about covering up of sin. And as I understand what grace is really all about, I consume the most grace when I'm pressing in, when I'm humbling myself, when I'm when I am allowing him to work in me and through me. Grace is not something that we want to avoid consuming. Grace is something that we want to overflow in our lives. And so I want to say to all of you that have come forward this morning, like, even right now, I just believe the grace of the Lord is meeting you where you're at in your confession. Like, that is huge. You are to be commended, not to be scorned. Do not cast your eyes down, but cast them toward heaven where your help comes from. Can I ask some prayer team members if you go ahead and just, just gather around them right now? Just if you come down, and, and even if you're not on prayer team, but you just you see someone down here that you love, a family member, whatever, would you come and just stand with them, please? Thank you. Let's pray. If you're just out there, we just even just extend your hand in blessing. Father, we are so grateful for your word and for these reminders of Jesus doing life with his disciples. That those disciples who are mighty in word and deed, those disciples who wrote our New Testament and uh, give us this sense of what it looks like to be a saint, a champion of the faith, that they were people of frailty, that they were humans just like us. We're reminded of the words of James that Elijah was a man just like us, And yet when he prayed that the the heavens closed up and the heavens opened because of his faith. And so, Lord, as they've stepped forward in a moment of faith and a, a declaration of their confidence in you, I pray that you would meet them here, that you would fill them now with your overflowing presence. I pray that you would just fill them from head to toe with your spirit, with your kindness, with your mercy, that your presence would ever go with them as they leave this place, as they, as they lie down, as they rise up, uh, from morning till night, uh, even in the watches of the night, that they would sense that you are with them and for them. That would you strengthen them so that it would be said by the Holy Spirit, I've not seen such great faith in all of the kingdom of God. Stir them up, Lord. Fill them full to overflowing Give them confidence in who you are. And in the midst of their circumstances, I pray that they would not only know your peace, but they would be able to sleep at night. That they would be able to hear your assurance in the watches of the night that you are with them. That you would never forsake them. That you have not abandoned them. And I pray, Father, that in the midst of their storms, They would sense that you are with them. Your strength would be upon them. And they would triumph. And Father, for your church, both gathered here at the front and all around the world, Lord, 
that would you continue to strengthen your church to be a people of expectation that we are nearer now to our deliverance than ever. And we say, Maranatha, let your kingdom come and your will be done on the earth and in us this day. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. I hope that you have an amazing week serving the Lord, and I look forward to seeing you next week. God bless you. There'll be prayer team members available up here if you need any other prayers this morning. I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. If you did, there's two things you could do for me. First, subscribe to our channel. That way, the most recent podcast will always be in your feed, ready when you are. And secondly, if this ministry has impacted you, would you help us to continue to reach others by clicking on the link in the description to give now. Until next time, thank you so much for listening to The Empowered Word.